The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, let me also encourage you now to open the Bible together as we go to Genesis and chapter 18. Let's open up to Genesis 18, and we're looking at the second half of Genesis 18 today uh, in our series of the life of Abraham, the faith of our father. Uh, as you are going to the book of Genesis and chapter 18, I wonder how many of you remember this late 90s TV show. I remember watching it as a kid. A late 90s TV show, it was called Early Edition. It was one of the first things that Kyle Chandler did before he went on to become a big star, Friday Night Lights and all that good stuff. Early Edition was a story about a man who got tomorrow's newspaper today. Maybe that's uh, ringing a bell for some of you. Other of you have never heard of that. Anyway, uh, he got tomorrow's newspaper today and then spent the rest of that day in acts of heroism intervening in the midst of the tragic events of tomorrow's news that were going to happen today that because he learned about he could stop or be involved in or in some way help now uh, it was a compelling show except for the fact that i think it got canceled after two seasons because it wasn't that compelling but the idea in and of itself is really fascinating isn't it imagine if you got tomorrow's news today now i bring that up not just to make reference to the late 90s and the, the tragedy of late 90s television, but to say that that is something of what Abraham is going to be experiencing here in Genesis 18. He is receiving news of real struggle, real sorrow, real tragedy, and he is receiving it early, and he is involved in, in some sense, intervening in that news uh, and uh, I think in that sense there is something about that that draws us to what we're reading about in Genesis 18 as we begin to draw closer to the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah intersecting the life of Abraham but before we read the text let us pray and ask God's blessing upon it and uh, hear God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look to your word now, that you would cause your spirit that rests upon our very lives and rests over the scriptures to inspire it. We pray, Lord, that that same spirit that indwells our hearts and our souls might be the spirit that also illuminates our minds to bring understanding to this text, which is in some ways very challenging. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give understanding, that you would give illumination and application to us as we seek to be faithful to you in the midst of the world in which you have placed us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come, that you would speak to us, and that by speaking to us, you would reveal your Son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And hear God's word from Genesis chapter 18 beginning at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. And let me encourage you to keep your Bible open as we look in Genesis 18 here. Let us remember where we are and how we got to this place uh, by looking back quickly in the first half of the chapter, Genesis 18, 1 to 15, as we're approaching the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Before we get to that point in the first half of chapter 18, we saw that Abraham is visited by three men and uh, he receives these three men who come to him in the heat of the day and he receives them with great hospitality, except we come to find out that these three men are actually two angels and one of them is the Lord God himself and they have come to the land of Canaan because they are making their way through, not just to experience Abraham's gracious hospitality and give him the confirmation of the news of Isaac's birth, who will be born to Abraham and Sarah in one year's time, but they have also come by divine appointment to visit and inquire upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we're going to be seeing more about this 
in chapter 19, but we have certainly learned a few things about these cities so far in Genesis. But even before we learned them in Genesis, uh, perhaps we had already had some things in mind because it is uh, true that biblically speaking, the names of Sodom and Gomorrah, we tend to associate with negative things, sinful things, and that is certainly just and right. Although I was reading an article this past week that was indicating the fact that biblical literacy is decreasing to such a degree in our culture that if you were to ask young people who uh, the names Sodom and Gomorrah represented, the, the most common response is not actually that they are cities in the Bible, but rather they are two individuals who are married. Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, biblical literacy is declining in our world. So we want to understand what is, what is this place and who are these people. Now, uh, very quickly, turn back to Genesis 13, and let's remember the fact that when the land of Canaan was getting uh, filled up with Abraham and his nephew Lot's possessions and their herds, and uh, as herdsmen, they were coming to uh, their owners and saying, there's not enough room for all of us. And so Abraham and his nephew Lot come to an agreement that, Lot, you can have your pick of the land, and wherever you want, you can have that land, and I'll take what you don't want and Abraham ends up settling in Canaan and if you remember in chapter 13 it was Lot who went as far as Sodom so look at Genesis 13 verse 12 it says Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot Abram's nephew settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom and in that narrative, where the land of Canaan isn't big enough for the both of them, uh, Lot moves off towards Sodom, and in that proximity, and then we'll find in chapter 19 that not only has uh, Lot moved in proximity to Sodom, he's actually become a resident inside the city walls of Sodom, but there was that curious note in chapter 13 and verse 13 that seemed kind of random and perhaps out of place. Genesis 13 verse 13 is this comment, Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so this automatically sets up for us the association that the names of Sodom and Gomorrah are associated with sin and unrighteousness as a synonym. But that's not the last time that we've heard about Sodom. Going ahead in chapter 14, if you remember, there was that dramatic experience where Abraham rescued Lot and the people of that area from the foreign king, Kidder Laramor, and the kings of Jerusalem and the kings of Sodom come to Abraham with thankfulness for rescuing them. And Bera, the king of Sodom, wants to arrange with Abraham this arrangement where all the people could be subjected to King Bera and King Bera will give Abraham all these riches and Abraham says to him in chapter 14 I don't want what you want to give me because I don't want to put myself in your debt because he understood who Bera king of Sodom was and he understood the reputation of Sodom and so we saw in chapter 14 that Abram does not want this association chapter 14 verse 22 Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
And so Abraham wisely does not put himself in King Bera's debt because he doesn't want to be associated with these types of things. So as we move forward in the text into Genesis 18, we know that these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have a reputation. But even if we didn't have any kind of biblical literacy to associate with that, it is still known culturally the name Sodom is synonymous because that is where the root word um, sodomy comes from. In the 13th century was the first term that uh, the first time that that word was associated with these perverse acts, and it was called sodomy after the land of Sodom. Now we're saying all of that up front to qualify the understanding of what happens here in Genesis 18, but what most people think of when they think of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually happening in chapter 19, and so we have to wait for that. But we don't want to get ahead of where we are. We want to understand how Abraham thinks about the city of Sodom, how he relates to the city of Sodom, and in that there are several very important, I think, lessons for us to draw from an understanding of how the gospel should shape the way we think about ourselves and should shape the way we think about other people. Genesis 18 becomes then massively applicable for our lives as we think about ourselves and other people, and we want to organize it in relationship of these two titles, the wicked and the righteous, the righteous and the wicked. The first thing we want to see is, first of all, the wicked among the righteous, the wicked among the righteous. So what's happening here is that in verses 20 and 21, God is summarizing for Abraham his intentions for these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that there has been an outcry. Verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against, the accusational outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. It's one way of saying that unrighteousness and injustice are the prevailing realities in these cities. And so there is an outcry that emerges from, but against these cities that cries out for justice to set right what is wrong, crying out for God's judgment against unrighteousness and injustice. And Abraham is brought into something of the inter, inner counsels of God's own will as it relates to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is brought into this knowledge because, verse 17 through 19, because of who Abraham is. Notice what it says in verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, verse 19, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Who is Abraham? And what does Abraham have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Abraham is the man that God has chosen through which he will bless the nations, through which he will bless the world. The man through which God has promised to bless the nations. And the question here is, does Abraham care? about the nations? Does Abraham care about those who are outside the covenant? Because at this point, God's covenant was with Abram and those within his house. 
And here is a people outside of his house. And God is saying, here's what's going to happen to them. Abram, do you care about those who are outside of the covenant? Do you care about the nations? Will Abraham indeed cause other people to know the Lord? Or is Abraham hostile to those who do not know the Lord and hand them over to judgment and say, who care about them anyway? Is that his disposition toward them? And the answer that we get in the text is no. That Abraham does care. But let us see that Abraham is not under some kind of illusion. He knows Sodom. He knows the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows the wickedness and reputation of that city. And he knows that if the Lord has determined to destroy that city, then God is not unrighteous to do so. But do you know, I think that's the biggest stumbling block probably in the text for us. Because the question that Abraham asks is the question that we all probably ask of this text, both in verse 23 and in verse 25. Verse 23, Abraham says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And at the end of verse 25, he asks that rhetorical question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is a text about justice, don't mistake it. This is a text about righteousness and wickedness and judgment. Nowhere does Abraham challenge God's evaluation of Sodom. Nowhere does Abram try to, in a sense, change God's mind about the idea of bringing judgment upon Sodom in and of itself. The judgment upon Sodom is not up for debate. And yet, Abraham is going to plea for mercy for those who are in that city. Again, he asked the question in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And there's a dangerous way to understand that question. Because we have to ask the question, what does Abraham mean when he speaks of the righteous? Because the wicked is, is, is a clear thing, but but who is righteous in Sodom? What does that mean when Abraham asks God, will you, indeed, will you indeed sweep away this group with that group when the wicked is a clearly identifiable group, but who are the righteous? And what Abraham does not mean when he speaks of the righteous, he doesn't mean people who are just, you know, generally, you know, good, decent people, upstanding. Because when the Bible uses the word righteous, it means something very particular. It doesn't just mean that there's a subclass of people inside that city that are, you know, decent, among others, who are not so decent. That's not what the text suggests. It's not talking about good people, but rather righteous in the sense of Genesis 15, verse 6. Do you remember that? If you don't, you go back and look at it. Genesis 15, verse 6, when it is spoken of, of Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 6, that he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteous counted to him as righteousness and so when the bible speaks of those who are righteous it is speaking of those who believe those who believe in god who trust in him and who follow and walk in his ways and abraham is asking for the sake of those people in sodom for mercy and it is a mercy that he is well acquainted with isn't it because it's a mercy that he himself has received because Abraham is no different in one sense from the citizens of Sodom. 
And the very clear application of that point that we're going to arrive at here is that we are no different in one sense from those who you would identify as those kinds of sinners. Abraham even asks himself when he's inquiring to the Lord, verse 27, who am I but dust and ashes? I'm just a man. Who was Abraham before God's grace got a hold of him? A wandering Babylonian, nomad, pagan, moon worshiper from out east. That's who Abraham was before God's grace got a hold of him. Abraham is not going to plea for the sake of the righteous on behalf of his own name and said, God, I'm so great and so you should do what I say. No, Abraham knows he is dust and ashes. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that some people are sinners and some people aren't sinners. The difference between Abraham and the citizens of Sodom is not that Abraham is not a sinner, but that actually he is and he knows it, but he has clung to God through faith and received the covenant promises. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that some are sinners and some aren't, but rather that some believe and some don't. Abraham is going to come to God on the basis of mercy. Something like we sing from time to time, just as I am without one plea, except thy blood was shed for me. Abraham understands this idea of coming to God not on the basis of who he is, but on the basis of God's own mercy. And so therefore, when it comes to understanding ourselves and other people, when it comes to the reputation maybe that cities might have for places of unrighteousness, especially places like Sodom, we cannot say, if we are gospel-believing Christians, we cannot say sinners like them. We can only say sinners like me. Now, my sin might look quantifiably different than their sin, but it is sin nonetheless, isn't it? There is no such thing as a sinner like them to a gospel-embracing Christian is a sinner like me as well. The distinguishing factor is not that we are different in our sins, but that we are different in who we embrace, namely Jesus Christ. Do you see in that the call to humility in the Christian life? That the Christian believer should never look upon someone with such degradation that they would conclude, therefore, that I am of greater value than you, that I'm more important than you, that my sins are less offensive to God than your sins. That can't be the case for the Christian who understands the gospel. We cannot puff ourselves up with pride when we look upon those who do not believe and say, look at those kinds of people. The gospel doesn't give us permission to do that, actually. So Abraham appeals to God on the basis, not of himself, but on the basis of God's own character. When he asks the question in verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Lord, your judgment is righteous, your mercy is righteous, and whatever you will is right. But yet, Lord, will you spare those in that city? He is a God of sovereign mercy. And so Abraham is calling upon him for that. But people of God, this is a somber point in this text, isn't it? That the God who is a God of sovereign mercy is also a God of sovereign judgment. And both his mercy and his judgment are altogether righteous. That there is no unrighteousness in God. Mercy is not merciful because there is no judgment. 
Mercy is merciful because judgment is real. And there are those who will be spared from it even though they deserve it. So Abraham is going to pray for mercy as the wicked are set before the righteous and Abraham appeals. So that is the wicked among the righteous. But now look at this aspect of the righteous among the wicked as we see Abraham entering into this interesting dialogue, conversation, deliberation it might seem in verses 27 to 32. It seems like, is Abraham bargaining with the Lord? He's bargaining down this number. Abraham wants to know, where does justice and mercy meet? Lord, will you spare your judgment if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? And the number goes from 50 down to 10. Verse 32, God says, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. He's answering Abraham's question from verse 23, that he will not punish the righteous along with the wicked, so long as there is a sufficient presence of the righteous among the wicked. And that seems like a very strange thing, perhaps, and we wrestle with that. And if we're going to sneak ahead in the narrative, eventually Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Why? Because ten righteous were not found in that city. Ten were not spared, but three were, Lot and his uh, two children. And it may be the case that Abraham has in his mind this whole time, Lot, who he knows is his nephew, who he knows is in that city, who he doesn't want judgment to fall upon him and his family. And so Abraham is pleading for them. But the point of this text The point of why God brings Abraham into these councils of his will to determine what's going to happen as it relates to the judgment of Sodom. The point of all of this is that the presence of God's people benefits the wicked of this age. The presence of believers is a grace to unbelievers in this age. That for the sake of the righteous, God is willing to spare the wicked. What does that mean? Have you ever considered that your Christian life and the presence of this Christian church is a means of God's grace to the surrounding community that withholds impending judgment? That is the suggestion of Genesis 18, that God may hold off judgment because his people are present in the midst of a fallen world and his people are active in doing, to use Jesus' own words, things that make them salty in their community, things that they do that bring light into the darkness of their community, things that they do that establish the church as a city upon a hill in the midst of a culture that has fallen... What this seems to be saying is that God is in the business of withholding judgment upon the wicked because there is the presence of God's own people in that place. Now, I have to admit that that's a challenging notion. But what, is, what it's suggesting very clearly is that your life and my life as a Christian believer actually matters deeply not just in an individual sense of you know, my life, but as my life relates to the world around me, as your life relates to the world around you. Have you ever thought about that? 
that as your Christian life relates to your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your family and the people you associate with and volunteer next to and participate with and youth sporting events and you sit in the stands with, that your life is potentially a means of God's grace in the lives of those who do not know him and God may be at work in their life because of your witness to withhold a righteous judgment upon them. That's really a very intense reality. That in the course of my ordinary life, my life which seems so ordinary, you know, weeks come and go, don't they? Maybe it's always Monday in your life. I don't know, right? Time just... But in the ordinariness of the Christian life, there is this extraordinary sense that your life matters for the sake of the wicked, the unbelievers who you bear salt and light to, that God is at work through your life to spare them. Something like that brings so much meaning to what appears to be mundane, something extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. And when I think about this, I always remember this illustration from um, colonial American history. There was a man named Luke Short. Luke Short lived to be 106 years old, but he was born in England. And he came over in the midst of the colonial settlement in America. And when he was a young boy over in England, he heard a Puritan minister named John Flavel preach a sermon. And at that point, it was just any old sermon, right? The way most sermons probably are. <laughs> in such a way that it didn't really make an impact and he walked out the door and he never thought twice about it as a young man. Until he's 103 years old. And the sermon from all those many years ago falls upon his memory. And Luke Short is wonderfully converted and lives just three more years. And his gravestone represented the fact that he lived in Christ just three years, though he died at 106. And the reason why I tell you that is to think of, imagine all the people that up to that point, 103-year-old Luke Short had encountered who were believers that perhaps were a preserving means of grace in his life to sustain him to the point of being yet 103 years old and having his heart soft enough to remember and receive. If Christians, in the course of his 103 years, had been nothing but judgmental jerks... <laughs> He would have thought upon the memory of the gospel, remembered the memory of those interactions and said, I don't want that. But could we presume perhaps that the memory of the gospel in Luke Short's life was also paired with the living testimony of Christian people across 103 years that would have made an impact that the Lord would use to draw Luke Short after 103 years. It may be that your life as a Christian bears significant influence upon the lives of those around you in ways that you are not thinking about at all. And God calls upon us in this way to love and care for those who we might qualify as saying, oh, those types of people. It doesn't work that way in the gospel. And so that is the wicked among the righteous and the righteous among the wicked. But in the midst of all of this, there is a very clear reality that compels us forward. Do you notice in verse 33? where this interchange happens and the Lord moves on. The Lord is going to move on to Sodom and the Lord is going to go see what the reality is in Sodom. And Abraham, it says, just goes back to his home, goes back to his tent. 
after Abraham has interceded and he has prayed and he has called out for God's mercy, he goes home. Which, again, might seem altogether unremarkable, but I think it compels us forward because Abraham, in one sense, has done everything that he can do. He has prayed, he has called on God's mercy, and then that's it, and he goes home. His primary concern was, verse 23, whether or not God will sweep away the righteous with the wicked. As if to say that judgment upon the wicked is just and right, but what about, what about those, maybe we could substitute this other word, what about the innocent? What about the innocent people in Sodom? What about the innocent people in our community? Would we be so bold as to ask that question when we know that the real answer to the question, who is innocent? Who is innocent of sin? And the answer, of course, is nobody. Nobody except one, right? The one who is the seed of the woman, the true son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice that Abraham asked this question because in the case of Sodom, the question was, Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that doesn't seem right, and there seems like a scandal, which is why Abraham is so exercised to, to intervene in that sense, but there is a greater scandal than will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Because at Sodom, the question was, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? But at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question is something altogether different. Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous, not with, but for the wicked? Will you sweep away the innocent for the wicked? Will you bring judgment upon the one who is innocent for the sake of the wicked? Lord, will you indeed cause your judgment to fall upon your son to spare those who are guilty? Which seems like an outlandish reality, but the answer, of course, in the gospel is... Yes, that God will sweep away the one who is innocent for the sake of those who are guilty. You know, these texts remind us, doesn't it, that the God whom we love is at the same time a God of infinite love and at the exact same moment a God of infinite holiness who shall judge sin. God's righteous judgment casts an infinitely wide and infinitely bright light, and no one can find a shadow to hide themselves from God's judgment. Our sin is seen, our sin is known, and righteous judgment is stored up to eternally condemn it. But rather than call forth the payment from our own lives, God sets forward his Son, so that those who are wicked and who are guilty might be spared and the one who is himself totally innocent and righteous be set forward in the place of sinners so that there might be grace and mercy and forgiveness for all who have sinned. That the Father will spare the sinner and show mercy to the wicked. We should not read Genesis 18 and position ourselves so righteously as to assume that we do not belong to be classified among those of Sodom. But because we have believed the gospel, we have acknowledged about ourselves this reality, that my sin deserves judgment. But rather than suffer that judgment upon myself, I have embraced Jesus Christ as he has offered to me in the gospel 
and found in him a shelter of forgiveness from all of my sins so that I might be called a child of Abraham, one who believes, one who rests in God's promise. Can the gospel be that true? Can the good news be that good? Can mercy be that free? And the answer, of course, is yes. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, even the citizens of Sodom, even me, and even you, finding shelter in the Lord Jesus Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you call forth from our lives certain realities that we otherwise are too ashamed to acknowledge, too unwilling to linger upon. But Lord, we pray that in your word, as it communicates to us the gospel, we would see truth, that we would rest in your grace and call forth your mercy to our lives and also in the lives of others. Lord, help us to be compassionate toward our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, that they too might know the glories of the cross of Jesus and the hope that is found in his name as we have found it. And, O oh Lord, as we rest in that grace, may it ever transform us, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.